Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. I love when it's an all-girl podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do because you say it every time. <laughs> I'm just always happy when Sam's not here. Room and, yeah. <laughs> I'm just always happy when we don't have to talk to Sam. He's a blabber now. <laughs> You're lucky he doesn't listen to this podcast when he's not on it. He's been getting on a soapbox quite a lot recently, so I think he gets a nice little break maybe to cool up, cool down. If you want, I can get on a soapbox about joint liability. And- I was going to say, Joanna, we're talking a lot about stuff that you uh, are very passionate about. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. That's why I picked it. Because I was like, oh, Joanna's on the podcast. Let's yeah. talk about laws. <laughs> I read that joint liability story when you published it. But when I was prepping this morning for this conversation, I didn't even open the story again. I was like, Joanna will be there. She can talk about this. <laughs> Joanna's our legal expert. She's our in-house lawyer. I mean, I didn't go to school for it, but <laughs> to but clarify, you're our not lawyer. lawyer. We don't need you to go to school. You're just our in-house lawyer. But I so don't really got- think that's how it works. <laughs> I feel like we should be really clear here that Joanna is not a lawyer, <laughs> but she knows way more about the law than any of the rest of us. And that's what matters. <laughs> yes. But we're talking a lot about franchisees today. That's pretty much what we're talking about today. And Joanna is definitely our head of franchising at this company. <laughs> Am I changing my title? I'm giving a lot of titles today, Joanna. I'm head of franchising and in-house lawyer. Uh, does that, I, Do I get a raise with that? <laughs> you can have new business cards. I think that's it. <laughs> Okay, so um, let's start talking about franchisees, because this is obviously the biggest issue of the week. Um, so Burger King, in some exciting news, I guess it's exciting for some people, maybe sad for others. Um, Burger King decided to acquire its largest franchisee, Carol's Restaurant Group, um, for $1 billion. As a note, Carol's made $1.8 billion last year, or in 2022. Um, cause I don't think they've released their numbers for 23 yet, but they made $1.8 billion. So good investment. I mean, right off the bat, that's a pretty good, pretty good deal. Um, I think they probably could have gone for more, but oh, well, um, and <laughs> so they're actually going to renovate them over the next five years, these 1,022 units. Um, and then they're going to sell them to smaller franchisees. So, I mean, I'm curious, we know a lot of places are a lot of groups have these big portfolios of a certain brand. Um, You know, we talked a few weeks ago about the Pizza Hut franchisees, the two biggest in California. Like, we know that there are these groups that have a large, large number of units of a certain brand. And I I don't really know what it means for the industry that Burger King bought out their largest franchisee. I mean, what do you guys think that kind of holds for the industry? This is a really interesting acquisition to me. Um, And I think everyone's thoughts on it are kind of muddled by the fact that Carol's presented at ICR last week. um, And our colleague Alicia Kelso was there, spoke with the CEO, um, did this whole, had this whole story ready to go. And then this news came out. And so now it's like we have, we have more context than we usually would, but at the same time, we have no context because they weren't talking about this news at the time. Um, Anyway, just fascinating. So yeah, so Burger King bought Carol's with the intention of renovating its restaurants and selling them back to franchisees, like at the end of the renovation process. A few different ways that I can see, well, I guess like really two different ways I can see to look at this. One is that Carol's is doing pretty well. They're in Q4, their Burger King same store sales were up more than 7%. Um which is, I'd say, a little above average for the industry right now. Um, But they have about a 1,000 Burger King restaurants, and fewer than 10 of those have been renovated already. And these renovations started two or three years ago with Reclaim the Flame. So 
in on one hand, you could see this as Burger King coming in and doing Carol's a favor and saying, hey, we're just going to buy your stores, expedite these renovations, like help you out by like getting those done. And then like you can have them back. I mean, they haven't said they're going to sell it back to Carol's. I don't know if Carol's as an entity will really even exist anymore, um, but like sell them back to franchisees because Reclaim the Flame really does view Burger King as a franchised system. So you can see it that way. And they haven't said whether um, Carol's executive team will be retained. Uh, We really don't know a lot about what the logistics of this are going to look like. On the other hand, if I'm Carol's, uh, if I'm a Carol's executive, I might be saying, what the heck? I was doing perfectly fine. They were on track um, to have, I think, half of their restaurants updated by 2025 or something like that. Um, And I don't know how those numbers compare to like Burger King as a whole or like non-Carol's Burger King's. Uh, So maybe it is really slower or maybe by buying out their biggest franchisee, they just see it as a way to expedite like the whole system. Um, But if I'm Carol's, I might be saying, was I, was I not doing a good enough job? Like what's going on here? So it's kind of a, kind of a confusing thing. You could read a couple different ways. I feel like we're going to get a lot more information in the near future regarding executive teams. And that might tell us a little more. And I'm really interested to see in five years, whether, you know, the restaurants are actually flipped and sold back to franchisees or if Burger King is getting a little possessive. Because I understand why Burger King wants to move things along. Like they started this whole thing because they're losing market share. Um, You know, they have a lot of work to do to modernize the brand. And so I can understand the anxiety of like just wanting to move things along. Um, But was this too big of a step in that direction? I don't know. It remains to be seen. Um, I think in kind of reading between the lines here, and I I wrote the story, but in not knowing too much context, because uh, uh, usually, uh, usually my colleague Ron Ruggles covers, uh, covers Burger King, uh, and I just saw the news and just hopped on it. But um, but so I don't have as much context, but in kind of reading between the lines, it does kind of sound as if they aren't going to be selling it back to Carol's executives. Cause like you said, they're not really going to, probably that company won't exist uh, at once they deplete, you know, all of their restaurants pretty much uh, or most of their restaurants. And um, it, it sounds like in, in them saying, you know, we're going to sell them back to local franchisees. It kind of sounds like maybe these will be, these stores will be split up into kind of like smaller groups from um, smaller franchisees that are local to whatever city or state that they're in. Um, and yeah, it does kind of seem like they just, Burger King just really wanted to grab the bull by the horns and be able to modernize the stores to the degree and to, uh, and, and as swiftly as, as they wanted to themselves. And they kind of just figured it'd be easier to do it themselves. Um, but it, it, I don't know, it just, I got some sort of tension there from reading between Carol's and Burger King from reading, uh, the from reading like the press release and the announcement um, and which is interesting because as you said, they had been doing fairly well. Well, something that Alicia Kelso brought up when she was writing these stories is that she said that uh, Deb Darby, who's the CEO of Carol's restaurant group, who I would think would have a role in the Burger King system. um, She said that uh, she's like, Patrick Doyle is great. I would follow him anywhere. And so I think that that was kind of one of the reasons maybe why they were more willing to sell under her leadership. She was appointed last year, 2023. So um, I don't know how long of a term this deal was going on for, but I have to think that it wasn't that long um, for this to have happened the first month of the year when she was appointed like six months ago. So, I mean, I have a feeling she drove this, um, but and I feel that she will be on the team. I mean, she's great. She, Alicia wrote a whole story about her. It's it's like she's a great leader. She knows what she's doing. Um, but she said, I will follow Patrick Doyle anywhere. And I think that that was maybe a big driver in why they sold them is because they have so much faith in RBI. And like maybe they trust them to take their units and grow them or make them better. Um, I mean, $1.8 billion could turn into 2.5 or 3 billion, maybe under Burger King's leadership. But I mean, I think Burger King has a lot of catching up to do. They 
they have McDonald's. And I think that that's a big thorn in their side because they're never going to be McDonald's. They're always going to be number two. Um, They're just, no matter what, there's McDonald's is by far the leader. And they're just like, that must be hard for a company to be like, we're always going to be number two. Like, you know, it's like the second child that like the first one's the golden child. And then you have the one that's like the black sheep. Like I just imagine Burger King just always feels a little less than. And so maybe the bridesmaid and never the bride. (laughs) So I feel like maybe this is a way for them to say like, we want more of a place in the market. We want to be, we want to have more control first of all, because they don't have a lot of, it's a huge franchise system. Like they don't have a lot of control. And I feel like this is giving them a chance to sort of take back what they've given away and then let somebody have it. But I feel like they, they need to feel like they need to write the ship is what I think they're thinking. And that's part of the reclaim the flame. They have all this new marketing stuff. They're doing these renovations there. Um, I think it was like, I don't want to, I don't want to make up numbers, but it was a big number. However much we claim the flame was like, it was a really big investment. Um, but we'll just say really big. Um, will you guys can guess the number or you can look it up at NRN.com. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, I just think that they're trying, I think they're just like, um, they talked about at the Domino's presentation at ICR. They're saying yes to everything. And I think that Burger King is kind of the same like trajectory right now I think they're just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks and they kind of have a lot of money to throw around so I don't know that's kind of my take on it yeah and as far as the competition goes I mean yeah realistically you know they won't catch up to McDonald's in our lifetime uh but they could catch Wendy's you know they could become the number two burger chain they're only like they're less than two billion dollars behind Wendy's um And, you know, they're probably highly motivated to stay ahead of, like, the next few, you know? Like, Sonic is only, like, five places behind them. Um, You know, that's probably the motivating factor more than trying to catch McDonald's. But, like, becoming the number two burger chain in the country, like, is nothing to sniff at. Uh, So I do think that, you know. And as I said, you know, people, companies these days are also losing market share to smaller chains. You know, maybe someone who used to go to Burger King for a burger is going to an emerging burger chain now. Some of which you can read about soon in our upcoming showdown. I was deciding whether or not I should feed into that, and I decided to just go for it. You know, maybe do it if you were maybe you used to go to Burger King, and I mean, like you know, maybe you used to go to Burger King, and now you go to Hat Creek um, or something like that. So it's not even just you know catching Wendy's and staying ahead of Sonic. It's getting market share back from some of the smaller guys too. Like those guys aren't going to catch up to Burger King, but they can take some of their customers away from them. So that's part of the game right now as well. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's not even just necessarily about numbers for in in terms of, uh, in terms of what Burger King's trying to do. I think they're also just trying to get back into the zeitgeist because I think that for example, like McDonald's aside, I think that people talk about Wendy's more often than they talk about Burger King. And um, I, I just think that um, that Burger King is trying to, you know, when they did the reclaim, the when they started the reclaim the flame, they had the the, uh, the new jingle. Um, and I think that they're just really trying to both capitalize on nostalgia with Burger King and with the Burger King brand, and also kind of move forward and become more modernized and just more talked about on social media and with younger generations. Well, that's interesting because Alicia's son loves Burger King, and he's a Gen Alpha. He was singing the jingle for like a year after it came out. So I think that Burger King is starting to really resonate with Gen Alpha in a way that it doesn't with Gen Z or millennials anymore. Like, I just, I think that millennials are more likely to go to an emerging chain uh, than a Gen Z or a Gen Alpha is. Like, I, I don't really know what Gen Z's tastes are, but they love McDonald's. Like, that is easy for Gen Z. They love McDonald's. And I think that Burger King may be the youngest generation's kind of burger chain because they've really been like, they push their jingles. They're on TV a lot. Like that's something that matters to these young kids who are spending a lot of time on TV or on YouTube and seeing those ads in a way that McDonald's hasn't pushed themselves. They're aiming towards an older audience. And I think Burger King is trying to get these kids when they're young and impressionable and make them think Burger King is your chain of choice. And I think they're playing a long game with that versus trying to attack people who 
already have a favorite burger chain. It's harder to move from one chain to another. Like you're not going to move from Wendy's to Burger King. You're going to move from Wendy's to like a smash burger type restaurant. You're, you're going to go that way. You're not going to go, Ooh, Wendy's to Burger King. What a, like, they're so similar at that point. It's not, I realize they're not actually similar, but like they're the same level. So it's the same kind of chain. Um, so I think that they're playing the long game and attacking these younger customers who will grow up with the brand, who will say, I've always loved Burger King. That's been my brand of choice since I was little. And I mean, I don't know if that's actually their strategy, but I think it's working because it's we have we don't pull a lot of Gen Alphas. We don't know a lot of what they think um, because they're too young and I don't think their parents would let them participate in polls. But um, we do... <laughs> That's why we know so much about Gen Zs because they're of the age where they're participating in these things and they have money. Gen Alpha doesn't have any money yet. So we really don't know what their spending power will be, but they're, every generation has more spending power than the last. So if Gen Alpha is growing up with Burger King and they're moved up and they're getting their own money, that could be a big play for Burger King. So around the time they allegedly finish Carol's um, renovations, Jen Alpha will start making pocket money uh, babysitting. And okay. All right. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Five more years and Burger King's pulling ahead of Wendy's. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I mean, I, I guess because I've always been on the East coast. I don't like, I've never really, I ate at Wendy's once on the podcast (laughs) <laughs> an episode of our podcast you didn't even eat at wendy's you ate wendy's in the office <laughs> it was pretty good but like i don't know much about wendy's it's like burger king is more culturally relevant to me even though i ate a burger king for the first time last summer um it's more culturally relevant to me than wendy's is so i think that that's like i think wendy's is they're based in ohio like i think that they are not like a coastal brand but they are in the largest swath of the country where a lot of people are like they are a brand that has expanded versus i think burger king is more just like they're the burger king everywhere oh well but aren't they like flame broiled or something like doesn't that differentiate them and then wendy's is a square right uh yeah i always love to hear holly's perceptions of different restaurant chains (laughs) (laughs) this is my favorite part of the podcast it's just like after we talk about the news holly gives her opinion and that's really something (laughs) and then holly's like i i haven't had like the the the, one of the biggest like fast food chains ever i had it for the first time last week (laughs) i got kava last night which i've eaten that before but it was delicious all right (laughs) all right so let's talk about more franchisees and franchisors, this joint employer rule, um, which has divided people for a long time. It's divided politics. It's divided business owners. um, Because the issue is that this rule would make franchisees and franchisors jointly liable. So think about like all the McDonald's child labor laws violations, because honestly, they're the ones that have the most child labor law violations, let's be clear. Um, But they like the franchisees take on the brunt of that financial burden. And so this rule would, in theory, allow the franchisor to also take a liability for it. Um, The National Restaurant Association does not like this rule. Um, They are not in favor. And uh, several other businesses, business groups uh, for the restaurant industry are not thrilled with it. Um, But President Biden said that he wants it. Uh, So, Joanna, I'm going to turn to you as our expert Uh, to talk about what this means. So I think that joint joint liability, the, the, the joint employer rule, which means, as you said, joint liability, basically any, uh, anything like labor issues, wages, uh, any lawsuits that a franchisee might face, uh, they will be jointly liable with their parent companies. Um, and so what's really interesting about this is that from what from the people I've spoken to um, for both the stories I've already done and my upcoming feature in the February and my upcoming feature in the February magazine, which you should definitely get the February issue of NRN. So many plugs um, today. <laughs> uh, 
they are on the same page. Franchisors and franchisees are on the same page. It makes sense that franchisors would not be interested in this because they have to put, uh, they have to spend more money and put more resources in basically like babysitting kind of franchisees, um, making sure that they're doing the right thing, um, making sure that they're, uh, you know, following all labor rules, et cetera, child labor laws, um, anything like that. Um, and so that is going to cost a lot of money uh, for them to uh, kind of switch to that mindset. Uh, and But franchisees, I was surprised to learn, as far as I can tell, obviously I can't speak for every franchisee, but, the fran- but I've spoken to several, and they don't like it either, uh, even though franchisors would be you know, helping them out and be, and being jointly liable means that they would shoulder that burden. But at the same time, they said that they would feel like middle managers. Um, and so they would kind of feel like they're not their own business owners. They, they wouldn't, they would feel like they're not independent enough. Um, and that they just are really acting as managers of these restaurants rather than, uh, rather than franchisees. And I can't blame them for feeling that way. Um, so I definitely understand why both franchisors and franchisees would not be a fan of this. Um, and uh, and as we said, Republicans are kind of on the side of on the side of the the business here, um, both the franchisor and the franchisee business. Uh, Democrats are mostly in favor of passing joint uh, of, of passing joint liability here, but uh, they in the most recent House vote, they uh, House of Representatives vote, they were a little bit split. Some Democrats kind of diverged from the group there. Um, but as you had said, Biden had said that he's going to, uh, if, if this, um, gets overturned in Congress, then he's going to have to veto it. Uh, That's what he claims. Uh, if we hold him to that, um, then I really do think that the job of a franchisee and the job of the franchisor would really change quite a bit. Um, who this will benefit is, I think it likely would benefit employees because it would probably mean more protection for them, more legal protections for them, I think. Um, but Republicans are basically saying that this is not business, a, not a business-friendly law. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's one of those things that, like, I don't know a lot about. And so I'm always interested to hear what Joanna has to say about it. I'm like, I read your stories and I understand them, but it's like hearing the context and the conversation about it. Um, is so interesting to me. It almost makes me wonder, like, who is really pulling for this, I guess? Like, you know, the Democratic Party as a whole, but like, who are they really rooting for? Um, It's one of those, it's one of those legal things that I think is fascinating to just like, follow and see where it lands and see how restaurants adapt. But I do think it's really interesting that there are so many legal battles going on in the restaurant industry right now. Like I've, and I mean, like, it sounds like, you know, the kind of thing that's like, it's always sounds like the kind of thing that would have always been happening, but I've been covering this industry for almost eight years. And I just feel like the last couple of years more than ever, we're following a lot of legal, um, a lot of legal dramas, you know, which is fun and interesting, but maybe not the best for restaurants as a whole. (laughs) I feel like when you call it legal dramas, it sounds like we're on like a TV show about lawyers. And I was thinking of like, you know, yeah, you know, like a really, really low stakes SVU. (laughs) Not that the stakes feel low to the restaurant operators, but it's different stakes. I had the same thought, Leanne, as Joanna was talking. I was like, who, like, why are people for this? Like, what is the benefit to restaurants? in general. And it makes sense that it benefits the workers because it's about pay. It's about like, we've seen the Starbucks, which has an, a exciting day. We record this on Thursdays, has an exciting day tomorrow, which may be not exciting for them after they uh, find out what the Supreme court says. But um, they, we saw this with Starbucks. They have these unionized stores. They can't get contracts. They can't get paid. Like, Theoretically, this rule would level that. It would give them a chance to, the employees a chance. Um, And I think that that's really where we see the divide politically is Republicans, along with the National Restaurant Association, are pro-business. Democrats are pro-employees. And I think that that's where they diverge. But I also think that there's a way to help both parties. Like there's, there's a way to help employees and make sure that they have protections while also ensuring that franchisees feel that they are a small business and they have control. And I think that there's, we just need to find another way to 
attack this. Um, because like there's a way to have happy employees who feel safe and also have a flourishing business that you still feel you have control of. Like there, there is a way to have those two things together. Um, so I don't write laws. I don't, I mean, surprise, surprise. I don't write laws. I don't, I, I know you guys probably thought I did, but I don't. Um, so I don't know what the next iteration of this could be, but I think that there's hope that there could be a middle ground somehow. Um, so yeah, just to give a little bit more context, um, basically this is, um, this is not just for protecting employees, but to get a little bit more specific, uh, the, the white house basically said that they want to protect, uh, collective bargaining. Um, and so for, um, for employees to have the opportunity to, you know, exercise their right to bargain for higher wages, better benefits, et cetera. And they feel that by having this protection of um, making both the franchisor and the franchisee jointly liable, um, then, they'll, then the worker will have more power. What's interesting about this is, you know, in, in this context, they are talking about, I guess I shouldn't say, say collective bargaining. I should say the right to bargain just individually um, as employees, because as we know from uh, from coverage of the, uh, the the union trend, I guess, the unionization trend in this country, is that for the most part, it's been Starbucks and Chipotle. Why hasn't it been, uh, for the most part, Starbucks, a little bit Chipotle? Uh, why haven't other restaurants kind of hopped on this bandwagon? It's because they're mostly franchised. Um, and so this really would not obviously protect, uh, th this would be protective of um, franchisees, uh, sorry, franchisee workers. Um, and so workers that work for franchise stores aren't going to be unionizing. Therefore, they won't be collective bargaining. Uh, sorry if that was a little bit confusing. Um, but yeah, I think that you're just really here. Uh, Biden and the Democrats really think that um, that joint liability would in the long run protect the power of the employee and give more power to that employee. I don't really have anything else. To I was going to say I forgot that you. <laughs> I was going to say I, I forgot that Leanne didn't read up on this story. So. You're waiting for me to talk, and I simply <laughs> have nothing to say. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. You know. You know. We we go with the flow here. We. I feel we fine with it. Yeah, I don't feel not fine. I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Joanna, I sort of gave a little bit of like a heads up on what we can expect tomorrow, Friday, um, from the Supreme Court and Starbucks. But can you kind of give people like a little bit of an overview of what is going on and sort of what we should see in the next few weeks? So one of the most high profile uh, lawsuits, there have been several lawsuits against Starbucks, between Starbucks, I should say, and the National Labor Relations Board. One of the most high profile is the Memphis Seven. So I, it sounds very ominous or like a Western movie, kind of like the Magnificent Seven. Um, but uh, they, these employees that were fired at this point, I don't remember exactly when, about a year and a half ago, um, and they're claiming, and they claimed that it was unfair uh, and they, uh, they, they sued, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, sued and they won, um, and Starbucks had to reinstate these workers. Starbucks is insisting that they fired these workers with cause and had nothing to do with them unionizing. And so they are appealing and they are taking it up to the highest court in the land. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case. And this is the first time that that one of the many Starbucks unionization cases has been taken up by the Supreme Court, um, which is uh, definitely a big deal. Um, these these uh, union cases have been really high profile and I think has uh, really shed a light on the state of unionization in this in this country, even outside of the restaurant industry. I mean, do you think that Starbucks took it up to the Supreme Court because it is a majority Republican conservative Supreme Court and they have a better shot than they would in a lower court? It's definitely possible, but I think uh, that's definitely part of it, I think. But also, I just think that they want to get more eyeballs on this. And um, 
And if they do win this case, I think that they would use it um, as precedent. It would be it'd be utilized as precedent for other cases moving forward, uh, other similar cases moving forward. Um, and they would gain a foothold and gain a bit more power in this kind of struggle between uh, the National Labor Relations Board and Starbucks over the question of whether Starbucks has been union busting and unfairly uh, terminating employees. How could this play out, whether they win or lose, how could this play out for other chains who are considering unionizing or have a union in place? I mean, we just talked about unionization with the joint employer rule. Like, how will this impact the future of unionization in the restaurant industry? questions that I don't know. You do this in first bite too. I'm not a lawyer. I can ask my actual in-house You're lawyer. our in-house lawyer, Joanna. Come on. I'm not 100% sure if, if that decision would then set precedent. Yeah. I think that that would make sense since it's the highest court in the land, but please don't take my word for it. I, didn't <laughs> I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to think about that we're really focused on unions now and the employees and how companies are reacting to it. Like we had this big wave of unionization 2019, 2020, um, and it really has come to a screeching halt. We have not seen a lot moving in that direction in the past few years. I mean, I think those two Chipotle stores unionized maybe 2021, um, but we we saw a lot and now we've seen nothing. So I don't, I don't know what this holds for the future of unions. I don't know if restaurant workers honestly want to be unionized. I think that Starbucks was a big deal and they saw that and we saw a few smaller chains like some coffee houses and uh, burger shops unionized with like under 10 units. But um, I don't know, like do do restaurant workers want to be unionized? I'm going to blow your mind because I think that time is going by really uh time feels like it's going by really fast for you, but it's actually 2021 and 2022. Was the oh my God, time is going so fast. <laughs> um, but I, I just think that in terms of why Starbucks was able to kind of create this momentum, um, I just think that it was the right timing. And obviously also Starbucks is not franchised um, so that um, you can't, it's, it's obviously a lot more difficult to, uh, to unionize a franchised stores because then they would do piecemeal. Uh, and it'd be harder to have a much larger movement. Um, it's really hasn't been done before. Um, and so I just really think that the reason that Starbucks um, was able to create this unionization movement is because they just really created this momentum and it was the right timing. Um, and it, as you said, it's really slowed down. Um, I think there's, there's a few hundred stores that have unionized and they like add and subtract because some people have voted to take back unionization. Some stores have voted to do that. Um, it's kind of like added, added and subtracted a couple stores here and there. Um, but for the most part, I think that what this has really done is shown a light on kind of the fraught relationship between workers and us and Starbucks corporate. And I think that, um, and I think that the new CEO, Lakshman Narishaman, uh, will it, it has been trying really hard to uh, kind of improve that relationship and improve their reputation, I guess. Um, and yeah, so uh, we'll have to see what happens tomorrow. I'm really interested to see what the Supreme Court says and does. Like you said, it is a much more uh, conservative Supreme Court than it was a couple of years ago. Um, so... So yeah, we'll have to just see what they say. Well, there was a report that came out recently that Starbucks was not doing a great job when it came to unionization and employee safety. And the end report was they need new leadership. That was about the year prior. So they have new leadership now. So theoretically, they should be able to move on this path forward. But their CEO was picked by Howard Schultz. Like It's not like he is some other kind of person like he's made to be in the mold of Howard Schultz. So you think that the ideals are going to be similar. Um, I really, I'm curious to see how this case unfolds and what it could mean for the rest of the industry uh, and workers and franchisees and franchisors and um, like how this could impact a unionization movement at franchise locations, because like you think about Carol's, 
like that that could have unionized in a different way than like a like an individual Burger King franchisee. And there are a lot of these carols like groups around. And I don't know. I mean, I just think it's going to be interesting to watch and see what the ruling is and then watch the next like two years and see how it's going to ripple out into the industry. I do think it'll have a pretty wide ranging impact. Um, not just in restaurants, but like across retail. Cause you know, union movement in the restaurant industry has settled down over the last year or so. But just this week, the NLRB was hearing complaints from a Trader Joe's union, you know, like it's so very much like there are pockets um, of retail and food service where there is a lot of union movement. Um, and to your question about whether people even want to be in unions, the first Trader Joe's store to vote to unionize, which is still waiting for their final contract, a lot of those people now want out of the union. So there's just a lot up in the air. And I do think that one way or the other, a Supreme Court decision will move things along. But of course, it remains to be seen which direction that goes. So stay tuned to Enron.com for all of your updates on this. Uh, we're full of plugs today. Um, so uh, I think we've I think we've wrapped up, guys. Um, I gave my thoughts on Wendy's and Burger King. Um, so we've finished the segment perfectly, um, if I do say so myself. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to throw it over to Brett Thorne. Belgioioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioioso, every cheese is a specialty. Yes, I am. And you've, I feel like you've been there a while, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, God, I want to say I've been with Doghouse maybe 11 years now. So this is like maybe 11 or 12 going on. Um, yeah, I started with Doghouse probably, I believe, sometime in 2012. Uh, at the time, I, I was launching my own brand of sausage called Gertler's Worst. And they were still a very uh, young company with three stores in the Pasadena area. Uh, and they were, you know, using different hot dogs and sausages. And um, one of the people that made some of their products was producing my product. And he introduced me to the owners. And uh, that's where the relationship started. And it's sort of grown and evolved and changed throughout the years. And, and is Gertler's Verst still an ongoing concern? No, that is the name of my company, but no, we did not. Um, I basically became the in-house verse mocker for Doghouse, and um, so I don't at this time have my own line. Uh, but you know, who knows uh, about the future? I would love to, you know, continue with Doghouse, and we've often talked about, you know, getting our sausages into the retail market at some point, and I think that probably will happen. I think you just need to be at the right place. You know, where the, when the brand is known in a large enough, uh, you know, a part of the country, uh, then, you know, then I think you can, you can hold your own against the big boys out there. Well, and Doghouse is getting up there in restaurant count, isn't it? How many are there now? Uh, it's 56, 57, I think, plus a few small, um, uh, like ghost kitchen operations too. But no, I think it's like 56, I want to say brick and mortar restaurants and many of those are beer gardens you know which have many beer taps and and some have full alcohol so uh, there are several different kinds of experience you can have within the doghouse playing field and how did you get into sausage making uh i got into sausage making i was really into barbecue in fact my brother and i had opened a barbecue restaurant in philadelphia in like 2003 called the smoked joint um, and then a few years later, yeah, great name, right? A barbecue experience. And then a few years later, uh, I was doing a show on the Food Network. They gave me a show where they send me around the country doing food jobs. And uh, it was called Will Work for Food. And one of the jobs I was working in a barbecue pit, but in Texas, right? And they were like, yeah, well, you know, I'm like, I love barbecue, but I'm, I'm like from Long Island. I'm East Coast, you know, I had never really 
cooked in the, in the true barbecue regions. And so one of the things we did, so I basically spent the night with the pit master, you know, starting from seasoning the briskets to smoking them um, or cooking them in the pits. Rather, they would say they wouldn't say smoking them. And, um, and then through to opening for service and selling out. And the great thing about a barbecue restaurant in Texas, if you know, is that the meat is cooked and then it is sliced and cut and out the door until it's gone. And then they do it again, which is an incredible way to do it. And, um, you know, that's often – I tell people, why, you know, why it's so hard for barbecue restaurants to survive outside of the barbecue regions is because if there isn't that constant demand, barbecue is not a food that can really sit around. It really can't. Um, but my point was – one of the things we did was make sausage, and I had not in all of my smoking and cooking experience made sausage, so I just became obsessed, and I started practicing, and it was, and it was very bad at first because a lot of the books at the time kind of just tell you the ingredients, and they didn't tell you the importance of temperature or fat content, and I was like, why can't I get my sausage to have that bind and snap that makes sausage so just desirable, right? Like so much of a sausage is about the texture and, and the juiciness. Um, so that's what led to it. And then I sort, sort of, you know, once I got better at it, I was like, all right, well, you could sort of do anything with this. Like you could a meatloaf or a burger or anything. If you employ the sausage making technique, it could hold on to a lot of different flavor profiles. And especially since there's so many people that have mastered all of the classic flavor profiles, it, it seemed like the way to sort of, um, stand out or do something that mattered would be to do something that really hadn't been popular at the time, you know, like Thai red curry, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, 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 you know, doing, you know, any, any, you know, mac and cheese in a hot dog or, you know, any, any kind of like, you know, fun play on a, on a popular food, but doing it in a sausage form at the time that was fairly novel. I think there's a lot of people that sort of do that now, but that's kind of how it started. And with Doghouse, we developed, you know, our own recipes for a lot of the classics, like an incredible spicy Italian or bratwurst or a Polish. Um, but we kind of, approach them, you know, from with new eyes, right? Using things like fresh herbs, fresh garlic, if it makes a difference, um, you know, to just kind of, you know, put a new, you know, uh, a, a new set of clothes on something that is like very familiar, which is a lot of what Doghouse does, right? Doghouse was always about familiar, classic flavors, things that you might crave as a child, but how do you deliver them to um, a more refined palate, right? As we've all grown with foodie culture, every sort of level of food is appreciated for its own excellence. And it no longer means that that is a high end or a low end or anything. It's like anything you want it to be great, whether it's takeout Chinese or pizza or a hot dog or a sausage, you just want it to be great. And, and so um, that doghouse, then we eventually started making all of our stuff in-house. We started making our own hot dogs using the same quality meat we used for the burgers and sort of, um, you know, opposing that adage that like you don't want to know how the sausage is made, right? Because you do kind of, right? I mean, if you, if you do care about what you're eating, you know, two of the same food, one can make you feel lousy and one, you know, you feel great and you wonder why. And a lot of and a lot of times the answer is what's in it, you know, the quality of the meat, the amount of fat, how many preservatives, how much salt, you know, you could do a lot with a lot of extra phosphates and use very little protein or meat in a sausage and it will still have the form factor of a sausage, um, but it's not necessarily going to be as wholesome uh, or even as delicious. Sure. Well, and... Doghouse does traditional sausages, but you also do a lot of those weirdo flavors. Uh, in fact, I yeah weirdo flavors. That's what we like to call sausage, them. or certainly have yeah. had those three yeah. sausages. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we've you know once you have an established menu and you have many restaurants like we have, uh, it's kind of hard to do a different sausage every week. Uh, which I wish we could do because I, I like to be creative and I always, you know, once, once they're being made, they're being made. You know, we have a, a partner that produces the sausage for all of our restaurants. 
Um, so through the years, and especially over the past five or six years, as we've been doing our um, limited time only, our LTOs for uh, where we partner with No Kid Hungry, and we give a portion of the proceeds to our partner charity there, uh, that's allowed us to introduce new items. They haven't always been sausages. Sometimes they are, but sometimes it'll be a new chicken sandwich or a new burger. Um, uh, but like last year, we did, we endeavored to do 12 sausages in 12 months, which was an insane challenge. Um, just because it's one thing for me to make a different sausage. It take me, you know, a week to come up with a new recipe, but to bring it into production, to test it at, you know, small scale, which call it a hundred pounds and then scale that up to like 350 pound batches, uh, and then multiply that by 10, uh, that often takes a lot of testing. So it was really tough to make deadlines. And in fact, the reason we only did, I think, 10 out of 12 last year uh, is because some of them didn't come out when we scaled them up. You know, there is always, um, there's, you know, things, you know, when I make a batch of sausage, I'll make a 10 pound batch in my home kitchen and smoke it outside. And then we'll go to our partner and they'll take my recipe and scale it up to 80 or 100 pounds. And then usually it's good. We'll make some adjustments. But then sometimes when you scale up beyond that, some things go awry. And then, you know, you, you begin to understand why a lot of the bigger chain group restaurants out there take so long to develop a new item. And we were trying to do a different one every month. It was fun, um, but it was also very stressful and particularly stressful for our marketing department, which is just like, hey, where's the stuff? We need pictures. We need to get this out there. You know, There's so many different parts. It's not like if I just had my own doghouse, which I do have my own franchise, or if I had Adam's Sausage Shop, we could do a different thing every day. You know, um, so it's it's just been it's been really interesting to kind of work in that world, right, where you have to make something that is consistent. But that's the other great thing about making sausage or hot dogs as a chef uh, or as someone that likes to be creative. Once you make that sausage and it's fully cooked, it's kind of hard to screw it up, right? You could really overcook it, or you could, but you can't like really undercook it. I mean, it's pretty much made. So you're delivering something that is as good every time, which is you know, hard to do if you're cooking, you know, a steak to a certain temperature or other things like that. Sausage is kind of foolproof. I don't really thought about that, but yeah, I guess once it's, once the sausage is made, you just kind of have to cook it. You just have to reheat it, right? Yeah. Like people, a lot of people still think like, you know, they take a hot dog and it's like, you could take a bite out of a hot dog out of the package. You're like, Oh, don't eat that. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's cooked. I mean, it's as cooked as bologna, you know, which is very much like what it is. Yes, absolutely. So are your uh, sausages all cooked and ready to go, and then they're heated and dressed to have uh, multiple different ways in which uh, uh, your sausages are dressed? Absolutely, yeah. Everything we do, uh, I think, is cooked to, I want to say, 152 degrees. You know, we have these giant cookers. So when the sausage, sausage is mixed, that mixture goes into a hopper. That hopper extrudes into a casing. Uh, if it's our beef dogs, which we typically do a skinless beef dog for most of our doghouse dogs, that is in a, 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 it still goes into a casing, but that casing is stripped off and they get like kind of like shot out and then they get packaged. But yeah, everything is fully cooked. Um, but not overcooked, right? So when we reheat them, you might cook them to 165 or 170. And then when you bite into it, all the, the juices are going to, uh, you know, they're going to drip down your chin and they're going to go into the bread and give you that real satisfying bite. And we'll char the casing, which renders it and makes it snappy and crispy in all the right ways. That initial cook is a very gentle cook. And, you know, this is how I know when I make sausage at home, if I'm cooking it in the smoker and it's dripping fat, I know I've screwed it up. You know, something went wrong with, something went wrong with the bind. And then you'll get something that's kind of crumbly and it just doesn't have it. And, and even to this day, sometimes that happens to me. You know, sometimes I try to rush in the temperature or I, I, I don't use milk powder when I should and there's too much moisture in my ingredients. So the initial mixture held great, but then as it sits before I put it on the smoker, you know, that moisture will start to penetrate the bind and break the bind. And it is so frustrating because it is a lot of work. 
You know, when you make the sausage, you have to cube up the meat, you have to semi-freeze the meat, then you have to grind it right at the right time so it's like 29 degrees but not 20 degrees because it can't be rock hard, but it can't be – um, it, it can't be like above 32 degrees. So you have to go through all these steps. And when it doesn't work out, it is a little frustrating. That's why a lot of times when I start, I'll go with like a really small batch, like maybe even a two pound batch on a first attempt, just to sort of get in the ballpark of where I'm trying to go with it. So is most of your uh, product development now about those uh, monthly specials, which I believe are called the absolute worst? Did I get that right? So that was, yes, but that was really focused on 2023. This year, we're opening it up a little bit. We are going to do some sausages, but, you know, partially because of all the issues we had and how difficult it is to keep up that pace. But also, we just want to broaden the scope. I mean, sausages are popular for us, but our burgers are just as popular. Our fried chicken is becoming increasingly popular. Um, You know, the combination of... Our fried chicken on King's Hawaiian rolls, which is what we serve all of our sandwiches on, that is just a magic, magic combination. Um, and, and in fact, this year, the first LTO is a bowl, you know, which is the first time. So we're going to be offering any of our entrees in a bowl form. So if you don't want it um, on, on King's Hawaiian rolls, if you want to avoid the bread for whatever reason, you'll be able to have everything as a bowl. So we kind of launched that with our two chicken sandwiches as bowls, which are the Bad Mother Clucker and then the Hot Chick, which is sort of our take on a Nashville-style hot chicken. And it's really interesting because I love a sandwich, but when you have it as a bowl, it is a different experience. Like certain things, you certainly taste a lot more. Um, you certainly don't get full in the same way. Um, and it's, and it's kind of great. So it's a great alternative, and we're just introducing that um, – as you know, so as I said, anything you get at Doghouse, you'll be able to get as a bowl, burger, sausage, hot dog, chicken, whatever you like. So this is how we're kicking that off. And then we're going to have some other – some more fun as the year goes on, and we're still planning that out actually. And your, your bold build – your bold build uh, seems pretty straight. It is a bold, bold build. The bold build is uh, – it's pretty straightforward, right? Like for the bad mother clucker – uh, it's yep. just the fried chicken pickles and uh, like a miso ranch dressing on mixed greens. Is that right? Yeah, so. that's it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and the ranch, you know, was always that sauce on the sandwich and ranch is certainly a favorite on any kind of bowl of greens. So that's a, that's a no brainer right there. Um, and, uh, and then the hot chick version of that, uh, has coleslaw as well as the greens. So you're getting extra crunchy cabbage with the dressing and our secret sauce. So it's a little bit of a different flavor profile, but again, not altogether unfamiliar. Are you in charge of the cocktails too? Cause you got a new one of them also that was just rolled out the old guapo. You know, we work with a great, uh, cocktail, uh, master Phil Wills, who a lot of people will know from uh, bar rescue and he actually was an OG bartender at one of our first dog houses. So he goes back with the company even before I do. Um, and uh, yeah, cocktails are not my realm. I'm happy to uh, defer to, uh, to other, other uh, experts on that. I enjoy cocktails. I love tasting them. But no, I don't really get involved in the development of the cocktails. Sounds good. It has tequila, dark rum, Aperol, pineapple, and lime. Sounds yeah, it is good. Wintry and refreshing. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a fair assessment. Uh, so it you talked about product development, like sort of you cook your own sausages at home in your own kitchen, mm-hmm. and then you take them to the manufacturer. Is there uh, any kind of market testing or operational testing that goes on in that process also? Uh, well, um, sometimes. Uh, I, I have my own franchise, as I mentioned before. We call that the Innovation Kitchen. So, um, And mine is not a brick-and-mortar location. So I'm in, uh, in sort of the middle of Hollywood, and it's only available for pickup and delivery. So I can get away with sometimes sliding something onto the menu and trying it out. Uh, for example, uh, I became enamored with Colorado green chili. Are you familiar with this? Yes, right. I'm, so I'm a it, this is Denver, a, so I'm familiar with 
Colorado Green Chili. Oh, wow. I, I, I certainly mentioned this to the right person, okay? So this has been an obsession of mine. My, my best friend is from Colorado Springs, and he took me to um, uh, King Chef Diner or whatever, and, like, he had, like, a green chili, eggs. Like, I just became obsessed with the stuff. And it's, like, one of those things where I'm like, how is this not broken out throughout the country? Now, in California, where I am, we have green chili. Usually it's tomatillo-based, but the Colorado kind is more green chili savory stock based and so i've been testing that now we're gonna we're actually gonna start testing that on other burritos we also have a great breakfast concept um called badass breakfast burritos so you know i was testing a a chili quiles uh burrito with that green chili and now we're looking at that and we're like you know what this this will go great uh on a burger and maybe as a, a loaded tot so that green chili which i love could be making its way Uh, onto the main menu. And that is a result of the popularity and the market testing in my one little location, right? You just put this thing on there and people try it out. But it's really, you know, when you see people reordering a thing, that's when you can really tell. Because if you run something for a month, I don't, I don't know how, how can you tell really if people enjoy it? Um, you know, because marketing could get people to order a thing. And if you only offer it for a month, how do you really know how popular it is on the reorder unless you're getting a lot of data and a lot of like sort of survey data, anything, it seems to be sort of uh, anecdotal, but when you can see the same names as I can and how many times they've reordered this item, that's data that, that tells you, wow, they like this thing. There's been no marketing about it. They took a chance on it because they liked us and this thing they took a chance on, they're coming back for that to me says like that could work at scale. Well, it's also the sort of thing, if it's just your one restaurant, you could say, huh, Bob likes Colorado green chili, and he also liked whatever, my red curry, whatever mm-hmm. it was. And so yeah, you can then maybe draw some conclusions about what type of demographic. Maybe not only based on Bob, but, you know, you could right. extrapolate. You're, and you're absolutely right. And, and in Southern California, there is such a such a wide disparity of different types of people from different backgrounds because so many people move here. So yeah, you can know that Bob likes these things, but then you do put it out to somewhere else in the country and they might not roll. They might not want to try that Thai red chili sausage quite as much, you know, and it might not be popular there maybe because Thai food isn't popular or it just sounds too exotic. And so, you know, you have to make those kinds of choices. Uh, so something like that might not have legs on a, on a, on the permanent menu, but it might be worth it to try it for an LTO. And then there have been times where things were so popular, we've had to put them on the, on the regular menu. That's, that's a great problem to have. And, and color yeah. green yeah. chili, I think of, so it's sort of a cousin to Texas chili con carne. It's a, it's a stew. It's a pork stew with a lot of green chilies in it. Yes, that's exactly right. But what we did was we kind of, separated out the meat part of it and just kind of made this sauce, right? Did the sauce with the chilies and everything. And, and then you could use it now as a topping on a sausage, on a dog with different things. And and you could also really easily make it vegetarian. So now that Colorado green chili sauce on, um, uh, uh, an impossible protein or even in one of those burritos I mentioned with no, um, meat, for example, delivers a huge amount of flavor, but we also developed a Colorado green chili sausage, which has jack cheese and the chilies in the sausage. And that is one of my favorites. And I'm really hoping that will get to make it to one of the LTO specials in 2024. Uh, in fact, I'm actually going home today to make a batch of Colorado green chili sausage, and we'll get to try that with the sauce. And, and, and tomorrow will be a really fun, um, you know, innovation day where we'll get to just play around and and just, you know, get really full and disgustingly full and we'll get to try a lot of different things. Yeah. I was just talking, I was in sort of a a test kitchen, I think yesterday and they were talking about the fullness that comes in testing new products and often the need that I will never do to spit out the food rather than swallow it. And I just, I'd not, I don't even, it can be frustrating. Or when I taste it. Yeah, I, I tend not to either. It, it can be frustrating because, you know, 
we all love food so much. And, and part of that, I think, is the satisfaction of like having a meal. And when you're doing a lot of testing, you, you don't have that psychological association with like completing the meal. You've just been taking bites and bites and bites. And really, you've had like five meals and you're really full, but you never got you didn't get to actually go to lunch. Right. Yeah. So. Um, but I've, you know, because I've been doing this for a while, like if I know I'm going to be having that, I kind of clear the schedule. I kind of go with a really light breakfast and I know there's going to be a light dinner and because I do want to enjoy it. Like, you know, you, you don't want to get so full that you can't even appreciate a thing anymore. And like, or like, I don't even know if this is good. I'm just so full. Yeah. And if you, if you taste a whole bunch of things, you just get palate fatigue and it's like, I don't, I don't know what that tastes right. like. I don't. Yeah, that happens. That happens where we, we put so many things in front of you and it's like, yeah, so sometimes less is more. Sometimes you really want to say, hey, we're just going to try three burgers today, two chicken sandwiches. Uh, even though we have more ideas, we're not really going to be able to dig in and appreciate, you know, by just doing 15 items, which we've done a lot. And, you know, we work with partners, too, when some of these LTOs, like, we'll have, like, the corporate chef uh, from King's Hawaiian, and he'll do a whole iteration process to come up with a, an LTO that we're going to do to celebrate, like, Hawaii week or something like that. And, you know, he'll only have one day. So they will just, they'll just have to bring so many different ideas. And, 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 and these ideas can be so disparate that it is really hard to focus and say, like, what did we love? What was that like? You know, and you kind of really have to take copious notes and kind of just go with your gut, I guess. Well, and tasting is different from eating. Like if you eat a whole sausage, that might be very satisfying. Whereas if there's a new dynamic flavor, it might be fun for a couple of bites. And then afterwards, you're tired mm -hmm. of it or you, you know, you right. a salad or a nap. Or right. Whatever. Exactly. And, and then that also brings in the consideration to kind of get back to the LTOs of it all is how many specific items or skews do you need to bring in to complete that item, right? You could make anything in the world, but if our stores have to make a sauce that uses oyster sauce, for example, and we run that item for a month and they're stuck with a bunch of oyster sauce on their shelves, that can be frustrating um, and difficult to manage. So we try to limit that. That was kind of what was really cool about the sausage series last year was we tried to limit the augmentation and have it all be about the sausage, right? Like, so with the sausage series, we tried to say, hey, this is a meal in a sausage. So for Oktoberfest, we did like uh, a bratwurst, but we put beer and pretzels and cheese in the sausage. So like, we're going to take that Oktoberfest experience and put it in a sausage. Or we took, um, uh, 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 the uh, uh, al, al Pastor taco, right, which is super popular out here. You see the stacks of Al Pastor. We put all those flavors into the sausage, knowing that in-house we have condiments like chipotle aioli, diced onion, cilantro that could, you know, we could still sell what we're going for without having to bring in a bunch of accoutrement. Like we just bring in the protein, you know, so we try to try to limit that. Um, so, you know, all the franchisees, cause we have a lot of franchisees and we want them to be enthusiastic about these new LTOs and not burdened by a bunch of new preps, uh, as in, compounding that with trying to then sell this to their, to their guests. Yeah. They don't want extra hassle in their lives. They don't. I mean, it's already a ton of hassle. We know right. this. As I said, I'm, I don't, I don't just... Uh, work for for the corporate office and in the kitchen. I have my own franchise as well, so I I really feel it on both ends. I feel more, in some ways, more satisfaction than some because I can say like, oh, I made that sausage and I'm able to sell it. That's my baby, you know. But um, we have a lot of people out there, and we we want them to be enthusiastic uh, as we are. You know, it's cool that you are a franchisee because I don't think many corporate chefs do actually also run their own restaurants. They just, you know, develop a product. But I'm sure that gives you much quicker insight into what the customers want. Yeah, I, I, I think I just, as the, the sort of ghost kitchen thing was really starting to happen in, in 2020, I saw an opportunity that I could kind of have my own kitchen without having to invest quite as much, right? I just needed equipment and a space. And it happened that it was right before the uh, pandemic really happened. And, and there was a lot of delivery happening. So that really helped us. Um, but I've seen, you know, I'm in a facility that has about 25, 28 
restaurants in there, and I've seen all but one have turned over many, many times. It's very difficult to make it if you don't have the support of a brand like I do with Doghouse, right? We're recognizable enough in that area that when people go onto those digital marketplaces, we're familiar, um, and then we could also be consistent with good packaging and well-thought-out recipes. But for independence, it's really hard to make it in, the, in that racket, as I've seen. Wow, you have a lot of inside knowledge into operational stuff that I think uh, a lot of corporate chefs don't. And I would like to talk to you about it for another hour, but we're about out of time. So instead, I will ask you, Adam, what, what can we expect food-wise from Doghouse in the coming year without you giving away any secrets unless you want to give them away? Sure. Well, uh, as I said, uh, everything being available as a bowl is incredibly exciting. Um, we are looking, um, burritos have been huge for us, uh, particularly with delivery and takeout. We discovered that the form of a burrito is a perfect delivery module, um, and, and it delivers a really high value. So I think we're going to keep pushing into the world of burritos, maybe going outside of just the breakfast burrito and developing some things within that world. Hopefully some involving my green chili that we're both very familiar with because uh, I don't want to take it away from being special in Colorado, but the world's got to know this thing is delicious. Um, and, uh, and yeah, hopefully some, some, some new sausages that I've been wanting to do, that some that we had ideas that we didn't get to do last year uh, that we'll get to, to do this year. Um, and, uh, and, and that's it. I mean, you know, we're always doing new things, and that's the fun about being in this business is having a stable base menu and then, you know, rewarding your regular guests with something new. And, and it's fun for us, and it allows us to give a small – um, piece of that to our charity partners. So we're, uh, you know, we're eating well, we're doing a little good and, and, you know, that's, that makes everybody engaged and enthused and, um, you know, just excited to keep going every day. What a positive outlook for the coming 2024. Yeah, that was what we're in. Uh, thanks a lot for, yeah. for, uh, taking the time to hang out with me, Adam Gertler, the Vorstmacher of Doghouse. And I uh, hope we get to do it in real life soon. I would love that.